Galatians 4. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours to worship you in song, in prayer, in giving, and in your word. We ask that you would draw our hearts to yourself. We pray that your spirit would mold our minds and enable us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Popularity. As I was thinking about popularity, I was reminded of a scene of an animated movie. You may or may not have watched this movie. It's called Ratatouille. Gusteau's restaurant had lost its rating. It was plummeting because of, first of all, the death of Gusteau himself, and really because of one particular food critic named Anton Ego. It was quite a an interesting figure in this film. A couple of new characters enter the scene of this restaurant, one of which is a human and the other is a rat. The human's name is Luigi, or Linguini, sorry. Linguini, close. It was a nice Italian name. Linguini and his rat named Remy. Now, as only an animated film can portray, this rat would grab a hold of Linguini's hair and move his body, and and the two of them made some wonderful culinary entrees for people that were starting to really help Gusto's restaurant become more well-known again. In fact, one day after this unintentional soup was made, there was a food critic that was in attendance, and she enjoyed the soup very much, and she wrote this glowing review about this, and she pronounced that Gusteau's restaurant was back. So there's this scene in Anton Ego's office where one of his minions, his employees, comes to him and says something about Gusteau's restaurant being back. And then Anton Ego says, I haven't reviewed Gusteau's in years. My last review condemned it to the tourist train. And he says, as he pulls out of the file his, his review, he said, Gusto has finally found his rightful place in history, right along another equally famous chef, Monsieur Boyardi. <laughs> That's where I left it. That was my last word, the last word. And then he follows with this. Then tell me, how how could it be popular? Here's this man who thinks because of his credentials, he can put an assessment on a restaurant and no one can disagree with him. It's very interesting. As if one person's thoughts really tell the whole story on an entire entity. Popularity has several pathways, many more than I can even bring up, but just a few for your consideration. Popularity comes from various sources. One way is to give people what they want. If you give people what they want, they'll, they'll certainly like that and, and come out. It's the old seeker-sensitive movement. It's, uh, you give them what they want. It's consumerism. There's another way as well. Make people feel inadequate without your product. Make people feel inadequate without your product. We call that enslavement, probably. And then very closely related to that, make people feel as though they need you. You might call that charisma. 
It's a leader-oriented popularity. Now, the false teachers of the book of Galatians that Paul is countering, they really probably intermingle these last two, enslaving the people for a, for a, a doctrine that, that they needed lest they miss out on heaven. And in fact, making themselves the major proponents of this, and so you really can't survive very well without us. So it's enslavement, and it is enslavement to people. Essentially what they've been saying is what you're hearing, what you're learning, what you have learned is inadequate. You're going to miss the train to heaven unless you adopt our doctrine. We really are something. We have something that you need. You need us. Because otherwise, you will fall astray. Gospel ministry is not about the leaders. It is not about the felt needs of people. And it's not about popularity. Gospel ministry is about pointing people to the truth of God's gracious provision through the Gospel that has a life-changing result. Take a look with me at the text. We're going to look at verses 16 through 20 of Galatians chapter 4. Now you remember we dealt with the first part of this section last week. Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. He's very confident if he were actually to show up and see his face, their responsiveness would be different. Because sometimes absence, sometimes it makes the heart grow fonder, but sometimes absence just produces what? Absence. And sometimes our mind changes and distorts things with those moments of absence. And we've, looked, we've been looking at gospel ministry through the lens of this passage. I think it really serves as a, a great treatise on gospel ministry. The four items that we noted last week are this. Gospel ministry encourages a refocus of our attention. We saw that in verse 12. Secondly, gospel ministry sometimes takes place through hardships that we face. Thirdly, gospel ministry is not based upon our resources. In other words, we are not the gospel. Finally, from last week, gospel ministry brings a spirit of joy and charity. There's a results that come from gospel ministry. So this morning, as we continue this, we have three more elements of gospel ministry. The first of which is this. Gospel ministry is bound to tell the truth regardless of the response. It has nothing to do with popularity. You don't decide what you're going to preach on to see whether people will come to hear you or not. You don't decide what to preach on to see whether you can gain a, a following or a hearing. This is not what you do to decide what to preach on. People need to hear the truth. 
People need to hear the truth. There, there's been trends, there have been trends over the years to go away from talking about sin because everyone's good, don't you know? There have been trends to not talk about hell because you, know, you don't want people to feel like you're trying to guilt them into anything. You don't want to point out to them that there are consequences to our, uh, our actions. You don't want to give them any of these kinds of things. There, there's been uh, a shying away from discussion of the blood of Christ because that's kind of gruesome. That, that's, these are not the, the elements that we make decisions on what to talk about. What is this that we hold in our hands? Is this the word of men or is this the word of God? If you, in fact, believe it's the word of God, I do, if you, in fact, believe it's the word of God, we need to declare what it says, whether people like it or not. Now, obviously, our goal is never to alienate people with the truth. We're not seeking to produce enemies or, or to be hostile. That is not the goal. Sometimes, you know the old saying, sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it does. Truth and light go hand in hand. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so the the word of God gives light. It shines truthfulness at us. And Jesus told us in the book of John chapter 3 and verse 19, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works or their deeds were evil. This is why so many reject Jesus, because He is the way, the truth, and the life. People don't always want to hear the truth. I find it to be foolish to not want to hear the truth. Now, you may not agree with something that someone else says. That's different. But to not want to hear that which is true, that's just foolhardy. Why would you want to go through life not knowing what's true? It's craziness. But the Bible's given us truth. We know that the Bible is breathed out by God according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can see many references to the fact that the Bible is God's Word. The reality is this is truth. And so we look at it week in and week out. Several times a week we get together and always the subject is what does God say in the Scriptures? Truth. Truth. And more truth. Before anyone ever embraces Jesus they first have to realize their sinfulness. And this is one of the the realities of the Gospel. The Gospel first hurts. The Gospel first hurts because it reveals our sin. It reveals not only our sin, but the consequences of our sin. And beyond that, a real understanding of the Gospel reveals our absolute inability to deal with our sin. Now, like, if you're presented with a problem and you can see steps that you as a human being can take to fix that, you're all for it. Oh, I have this disease. If I eat this kind of food and this kind of food and I avoid that kind of food, my disease will get better. Maybe you have a celiac disease, right? And, and if, if you eat certain wheat products, it, it just distorts all of your insides. So you say, all right, I like wheat. I'm going to eat it anyway. Well, who's, who's the not smart one at that point? <laughs> you're the not smart one if you decide to do that because you're going to spend most of your life on the toilet. That's not fun. So, instead, instead of that, you choose other foods that your body can digest, that your body does process, that does give you nutrients. You, you see this information? Okay, we take reasonable steps. The Gospel says there are no steps you can take. You're absolutely 
sunk. People don't want to hear that. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. Show, I want to feel good about myself. I'm going to do the things that please God. I'm going, to, I'm going to stair step my way to heaven. Gospel says, can't do it. All of your works, every righteous deed is filthy rags before God. The gospel first hurts. It reveals our sinfulness and our inability and our condition and the consequences of our sin. It hurts first. And then, later, it heals. How does it heal? It shows us the merciful nature of God where He says, you, in yourself, are alienated from Me. You choose your way. Your sin is an offense to Me. And you can't come My way. However, I love you. And I've given My Son as an offering to bear the weight and guilt and penalty of your sin. I will give you mercy. I will take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. I will, I will strike it from the record. Your record will be expunged. I'll never hold you accountable for your sin. I have removed the possibility of condemnation through Jesus who lived perfectly and fulfilled what you and I cannot fulfill who willingly laid his life down as a sacrificial offering for my sin, a wrath-removing sacrifice. And those deeds that he committed, every righteous act is available to you to go onto your record if you will just trust Christ. So the, the, the gospel first hurts us by showing us our inability and our sinfulness and the condition that leads to death, eternal condemnation. And then it heals us by showing us that God is merciful and gracious and has provided a way that this guy who is unable now has access to heaven. In fact, not only access to heaven, he'll not only make the way to heaven, he will carry me there. This is through Christ. This is the gospel. It hurts and that it heals. This is why we tell the truth. Before someone agrees to a treatment plan, they first need a diagnosis. The diagnosis is you're not good enough. Your sin has eternal consequences. The treatment, Jesus died to pay for your sin to provide you with enough goodness for heaven. What about the treatment plan for believers? Hey, we know how to come unto salvation. The Galatians knew how to come unto salvation. Right? They had trusted Christ. Their sins were removed. Jesus' righteousness was added. They had been justified. But in the process of false teaching coming in, they who had begun in the Spirit were now trying to be made perfect by the flesh. That's what Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3 is telling us. And he keeps unfolding this, this reality. Believers also need a diagnosis and a treatment plan. And the diagnosis and treatment plan is very similar to the diagnosis and treatment plan for unbelievers. You are unable to make yourself spiritual believer. You are unable to make yourself spiritual. God has done enough to take you from death to life unto justification as well as unto sanctification, which is that continuous process whereby God makes us more and more devoted to Him and yielding to Him. 
as you look at this passage, Paul is letting them know, hey, listen, at one point you, you, you really loved me, your blessedness was there, you were joyful, and you had a charity. In fact, you were so charitable that you would have gouged out your eye and given it to me. That's how much you loved me. What has become of your blessedness? He said that in verse 15. Now in verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, truth-telling, the Bible lets us know, needs to come with some other ingredients. Like we can be people that stand on the street corner and yell condemnation at people. I don't know that that is very fruitful. We could be people that look down our noses at others to talk about their sinfulness. Now, you have to know you're a sinner before you ever embrace the Gospel. But you know, there's a way that we communicate these truths that can either alienate people or, or be effective. Well, the Bible tells us when we speak the truth, we need to speak it in love in Ephesians 4.15. The Bible tells us when we go to someone who's a sinning brother and we speak to them, we're to go with meekness, according to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 that when we speak the truth, we need to do so with respect. Respect. That person has a right to believe whatever they want to believe. I don't disagree with that philosophy in this world. Now, the philosophy of the world says that whatever you believe is right... That I don't agree with. But every person is capable and has a right to choose what they want to choose. Have at it. When we contrast what they believe with what God says to show them the truth, we do so with love, with meekness, and with respect. This is the way that we're supposed to bring the message. We we don't seek to bring a message that is an alienation. We seek to bring them something that is a reconciling message. Remember, God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation, taking parties that are at enmity, at odds with one another, and bringing them into a peaceful relationship. So the goal is reconciliation, not alienation. So we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth with respect. We speak the truth with uh, meekness. The listener, the listener, I really like this, Hebrews chapter 13, he talks about how short a letter he wrote. 13 chapters. I wrote you this little short letter. And he says, bear with this word of exhortation. The listener needs to bear with correctives. I think that's very important in our day and age. No one really likes to be told what to do. I don't think that's anything new. I'm pretty sure Cain didn't like it. What do you think? Cain didn't like being told what to do? He didn't. He's an example of me. I don't like being told what to do. You don't either. No one does. Which is why God brings us this truthfulness. And he says, listen, bear with the word of exhortation. It might not feel good, but listen. Listen. So we need these kinds of admonitions from the word. And Paul summarizes it with this one quick statement. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Hey, I'm just trying to tell you what God says. He did so with tenderness. You can see it elsewhere through this letter. There's a second element of gospel ministry we want to notice. Gospel ministry promotes the greatness of Jesus Christ, not the messenger. Gospel ministry promotes the greatness of Jesus Christ, not the messenger. Look at verses 17 and 18. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. 
and not only when I am present with you. He's speaking of some wrong motives. It's pretty clear, correct? There's no one that questions. What he's saying is the only reason they're making much of you, they're, they're spending a lot of time and energy on you, so you'll make much of them. That's not, that's not good. That's not good. We don't rejoice in any man's person. God doesn't have respect for any man's person. That's what it says in the Scriptures. The reality is God loves us and He wants to give us what is respectable through Christ. So wrong motives. Wrong motives is really uh, at the heart of this short section here. Many ministers try to extract things from people. What can you do for me? And I think Paul gives us some really great counters to that. I want to take a look at a couple of passages with you, please. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul makes it obvious that his ministry was not one of extraction, extracting from people, but instead provision. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're just going to cut right into the middle of this. In verse 14, it says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's saying this is right. If a person is given their life to the Lord and serving the Lord and proclaiming the gospel, they, they should be compensated for that. Verse 15, But I have, not, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. In other words, I don't want my physical needs to get in the way of you getting the gospel. It's not worth it to me. It's far more important to me that the gospel go to you. That's one illustration of it. Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment. This is a really a very clear picture of the contrast between real gospel ministry and the kind of ministry that was going on amongst these false teachers in Galatia. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we want to start reading in verse 5. We're going to read through a couple of sections in here. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. I'm not trying to extract something from you. Nor did we seek glory from people. I'm not trying to extract something from you, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Skip down to verse 9. We're going to come back to verse 7 in a minute. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He's letting them know. We, we could have extracted from you, but we chose not to extract. We chose to invest. We chose to invest. How much of an investment did Paul and his associates make? Listen to the wording. This is, this is really quite something as you, as you try to get the feeling. You know, just imagine that Paul were writing this personal letter to you. You met him one time. He came across. He brought the gospel and he ministered to you and he had to leave very quickly because of some persecution that had, that had arisen. And then he writes this letter to you. Listen to the words as if you are the first recipient. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Can you see the tenderness with which he is conveying this? Real ministers of the gospel invest in people. They don't try to extract to get as much as they can. Our boast is not credentials, rhetorical skill, or successful business models. Our boast is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Head over to Galatians 6 for a moment. Our boast is Jesus Christ. In verse 14 of Galatians 6, Paul writes this, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You'll remember when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 31, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Gospel ministry does not self-promote. Gospel ministry promotes the greatness of Christ alone. Gospel ministry seeks to enable people to deepen and spread their roots. It was referenced in prayer earlier from Colossians 2. Just as you received Him, so walk in Him, rooted and grounded in Love, it's the spreading of our roots. This is what gospel ministry is supposed to do, to to help people grow in their understanding of Christ. And it's also to help them not to shift when false doctrine comes. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, that we're no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Gospel ministry is to really cause people to be planted firmly and deeply into the Word of God and the gospel so that they're not easily turned aside to something that's not true. The Galatians really were having some struggles. And Paul wanted to remind the people, these people that you're listening to are about themselves. They're about themselves. They're not about Christ, and they're not about you. How do we make much of those to whom we minister? Because again, it says in verse 18, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. What does he mean by that? How do we make much of the people to whom we minister? By showing them that they are capable ministers. See, Christianity is not about the the skilled professionals. Though they went off to seminary and so they're, they're qualified to teach. It's not about that. Gospel ministry is about taking what God has revealed. It's supernatural and conveying it to others so that they can do what? Convey it to others. Why? So they can convey it to others. It's not about the professionals. It's about people realizing that you have been saved to be a minister. No one in here stands above the, the rest. No one. Not the elders, not the deacons, not the pastor. None of us stand as, as superior to the rest. The reality is, we, if, if we've come to know Christ, we stand on the grounds of our unity in Him, our union with Christ. And what do we do? We keep pointing people to Him. 
And you know what? There's not a person in here that knows Jesus Christ as their Savior that is not capable of doing that. You need to. You need to. You need to find ways. Maybe you can't stand up in a pulpit. That's okay. Not everyone is gifted to do that. But you can talk to your neighbor. You can talk to your coworkers. You can talk to your children. You can talk to your parents. You can talk to people that, that you have a one-on-one relationship with. Maybe some of you can, can teach a small group where there are five, six, seven, eight, ten people in it conveying the gospel. Maybe you have that capability. Maybe you'll never stand behind this pulpit. Well, maybe you, maybe you can. I can tell you this. Everyone that's saved, that's come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, has the Spirit dwelling in them and has the same God-breathed Word in front of them. You are a capable minister. We make much of you because it's not about me. And it's not about the board of elders. It's about Christ. And you and I can share him with one another and with others as well. There's a third element of gospel ministry that this passage addresses, and it, it's really encouraging and really exciting. Gospel ministry is burdened to see Christ displayed in life. Gospel ministry is burdened to see Christ displayed in life. He starts off by giving us a note of tenderness in verse 19. My little children. You won't see Paul write that anywhere else. You'll see John write it in his letters. But Paul, with this statement of tenderness, is speaking to them with with these compassionate, caring, relational terms. My little children. Tenderness. Notice the burden. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Ministry, while everyone is capable of it, ministry is difficult. Ministry is a burden. Now, the term burden has a negative connotation, and I don't mean it as such. It's like, oh, I've got to do this? Not that kind of burden. It's a burden towards something. It's a, it's a passion for something. It's a zeal for something. I want you to notice a couple of passages of Scripture. We're going to come right back, so hold your hand here. But take a look at Colossians chapter 1 just for a moment. Colossians 1 and verse 24. Paul speaks of the hardships he experienced. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. What is he talking about? He's saying, I have this passion for you. This passion to bring Christ to you. And it it costs me something. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says this this stewardship is is cast upon me. I want you to notice one other passage about this. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. He talks about the, the Philippians letting their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He wants them to stand firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then he says, as he concludes this, in verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same... What's the next word? conflict that you saw that I had and now here I still have. The, the conflict. There's this passion. There's this pursuit. He says it differently. Head back to uh, Galatians. 
He says it differently. This will be on the screen behind me. In 2 Corinthians 11, he kind of gives it a, a word picture. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present, your, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What he's saying is, I, I don't take this loosely. It's not like, well, I, this is my, my day hobby. You know, I, I get paid and I preach. This is not what it is. There's, a, there's a, a burden. There's a striving in his own soul. There's an unrest in his soul. What is it for? To see Jesus formed in people. It's not to no end. It's not so there's more money in the offering plate so that the, the building gets bigger and so it gets shinier and more beautiful. It's not about that. That's not the goal of ministry. The goal of ministry is to see Christ formed in you. At creation, God made Adam and Eve, and we saw this in Sunday school this morning, God made Adam and Eve in His own image. No other creation, no other creature has this distinction. Not an angel, not an animal. Only mankind. Adam and Eve formed, and then in that DNA, in the way that God made us, He made us in His image. With the fall of man, there was a marring of the image of God. The image of God is still there. James says it, that we are made after the similitude of God in James chapter 3 and verse 9. At salvation, listen carefully to this, at salvation, with the indwelling presence of the Spirit... Our lives are marked not by our own self-will or lust, but our lives are marked by the power of God. God wants to change us. He's restoring us to the original plan. See, when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living spirit or living being, God gave him this way in which he could reflect God in God's glorious way. The animals, while they show forth God's power, do not reflect God's image. When you look at the stars and see the the immeasurable wisdom and power of God, in fact, it tells us that about God's eternal Godhead. It tells us things about God that are that are amazing. It does not reveal the image of God. Animals do not have what we have. They don't live forever. They cannot rightly relate to God. They can, they can please God. In fact, animals do please God. Your little puppy dog Aww. pleases God or he wouldn't have made it. So also the ants. Even the fire ants. Sorry. Um, everything God has made is a way in which he dis- demonstrates his power and wisdom But man, rightly related to God, reflects who God is. No animal does this. Nothing else God created does this. How does that take place? Well, I want us to look at two passages of Scripture. Ephesians 4, first of all. Paul's writing to to believers. And he tells them that they need to, we need to put off our old man. 
So this is not talking about coming unto salvation. He's talking about in our daily lives. You've already come to Christ. Great. In our daily lives, we have this battle that goes on within us. What is that battle? Please me. Please me. Or please God. Do what God wants. Or do what you want. That's the constantly the choice. It comes in different forms. It looks different on different days, and it looks different between different people. But that's the battle. It's very simple. Me or God? Will I reign or will he? God says, put off the old man. That's me. Why would I want to do such a thing? Because that, that old you is growing corrupt. Growing corrupt. He says in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Instead of letting your will and your way control you, let's find out what God has to say. That's right here. That's right here. This is how we renew our minds. You get in the Word. We see what God says. And then he tells us the key to the whole thing. He says, put on the new self. Created. That's past tense. Created. After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off you because that is marred and it's not getting better. Look at what I have to say. Know who I am. Know what I've designed you to be. Know what reflects me. And if you really want that to come to pass, put on the new man. It's already done. It's not like it's being created. Like, you're going to get better and better as a Christian. No, it's put on Christ who is already perfect. This is another way of saying what we say all the time. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When the Spirit is controlling us, this this image of God that's already perfect is on display. It's true righteousness, not fake ones. It's true holiness, not, not some facsimile thereof. It's real. So there's, there's this surrender that's taking place. Take a look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. With the indwelling Spirit that God has given us at salvation, there's an opportunity to restore the original design. And Paul has already pointed this out. Very quickly, he passes by it and moves on. But in chapter 2, in verse 20, he says... I have been crucified with Christ. Does that sound like anything like put off the old man? Anything like it? Seems to me that it's related. Die to self. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What's He talking about? Put on the new man. It's the same concept. Now it's different terms, different phraseology, same concept. I'm dead to myself. I have been united together with Christ in His crucifixion. Therefore, my daily life should be marked by what? Letting Christ dwell in me. Letting Christ rule in me. Let Christ live. When Christ is living in me, now He's he's there, but when I'm allowing Him to be seen, when Christ is formed in me, not just placed there in the form of the Spirit, but now in, in, uh, absolutely engaged in and demonstrated in life, what's the result? Fruit. 
fruit. What kind of fruit? My fruit? No, God's fruit. Galatians 5, take a look please, at verse 22. Galatians 5, we know this passage very well. Notice how it doesn't say the fruit of the Christian life. doesn't say that, right? doesn't say the fruit of your study. The fruit of your meditation. doesn't say the fruit of your devotion. The fruit of your humility. It doesn't say the fruit of your deep, hard, sweaty work. What does it say? Can you say it with me? The fruit of the... Who's doing this? Does he do this in baby Christians? Does he do this in mature Christians? What does he produce? What does it say? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there things there is no law. What is going on here? The fruit of God's working is this. When God does something, does He make it perfect? So is the fruit of a mature Christian better than the fruit of a baby Christian? Please say no. Should the fruit of a mature Christian be more plentiful than a baby Christian? If you say yes, and I I think that that's the right answer, what is the reason that the fruit is more plentiful? It's not because you've worked really diligently and learned how to do it. It's because you've learned to yield to the Spirit more frequently. More frequently. Consistently. Saying, God, it's, this is not about me. This is about you. And when Christ rules in the heart, what happens? Fruit. So if that's taking place 20 of the 24 hours in the day, I wish, um, then there's going to be a lot of fruit. If it's taking place 14 hours of the day, there's going to be a lot of fruit. If it's only taking place one hour a day, there's going to be some slim pickings on that, that fruitfulness front, right? Uh, during that hour, or if that hour is broken up over the course of 20 hours, whatever the case, during those, those moments, there'll be real fruit. Real fruit. Genuine fruit. Godly, Christ-born fruit. And it's just as good as anyone else's fruit. It just... Maybe not so consistent. So what are, what are we looking for, really? What is it that, that Paul, what is it that God wants from me as we look at this passage back in Galatians 4, 19, where it says, for whom I am again in anguish. I'm striving again in childbirth. Just as hard as I strive to give you the gospel that you might come unto Christ and know who He is. I have this much intensity and this much passion to have you know Christ and see Him born out in life. So that day in and day out, you'll see the evidence that Jesus is real and alive and He can produce fruit in you. I have the same passion and intensity to bring you not just unto salvation, but to see that salvation on demonstration, on display so that Christ can be seen in life. What does He want? What does God need from us? The goal of Gospel ministry is to train ourselves to so admire God and His way that we live in perpetual surrender to Him. We need it. What is our problem? We, we, lose, we lose a glimpse of that glory that is God. And we bow down at an altar to self because we think it'll be better. That's, that's a form of unbelief. We deceive ourselves. When we are surrendered, we are displaying Christ in life. 
Christ is displayed because Christ is formed in us. There is nothing selfish about this ambition. There's nothing selfish about wanting to see Christ formed in someone else. Our goals are not bigger offerings, not bigger buildings, not more prominence. Our goal is to see Christ on display. This is why God redeemed us, that we might demonstrate Christ in the church, in our home, in our workplace, Wherever we go, Christ on display for the glory of God. The rest, all the other things that come in ministry, are a consequence of Christ ruling in us. So what do we need? Same thing we need every week that we talk about. God, help me to surrender to you. Help me to die to myself. Fill me with your spirit. Capture my attention. Draw my mind. Help me to love you. Empower me to serve you. Let's pray. Father, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.